0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Ever since the economic reforms in the 1980s, China has focused on economic progress and proved itself to be one of the most successful development stories in history. Uh, However, we haven't been seeing the same level of vitality for religious activities and commitment to, to faith and values. Until very recently, and in this episode, we're going to talk about China's search for values, uh, its revival of religions, and uh, the future of its cultural development. Here in the studio with me is Mr. Ian Johnson, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and reporter currently living in Beijing, uh, which has been his home for more than 20 years. Uh, He has written for a number of publications and was the Wall Street Journal's Germany bureau chief. I would like to especially thank Princeton's uh, East Asian Studies Department for connecting us with Mr. Johnson. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Johnson.
1: It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. Uh,
0: So you've been studying the uh, phenomenon of religious awakening and revival in China Uh, for for many years. You just published this book, uh, The Souls of China, in 2017, which is uh, about the return of religion after Mao in China. Uh, What have you found about religion uh, in China over those years, and what does your book talk about?
1: Well, it's basically looks at how religion has revived, uh, especially in the past 10, 20 years. Uh, when the Cultural Revolution ended in the mid-1970s, religion was allowed to come back in China to return. It was legalized again. But people thought it would probably die out and that as China got more prosperous, that uh, religion would just become smaller and smaller. But in fact, it seems like the opposite has happened, that religion has gotten bigger and bigger and become a central part of Chinese Society and political life again, um, and, and this, thing, this reflects, you know, a couple of different things: people's search for values, for meaning in life, um, the idea that getting rich doesn't necessarily make you happy; that there have to be deeper values or something more meaningful in your life. And, and of course, not everybody finds this in religion, but many people do, and this has helped spur a rise in the number of temples that are being built, churches, mosques, etc
0: you were just saying how you know china there's a uh, we're seeing more religious activities you know mosques temples being built and you actually wrote this article for foreign affairs titled china's great awakening uh, that across china hundreds of temples mosques and churches open each year attracting millions of new worshipers uh, faith and values are returning to the center uh, of na- a national discussion over how to recognize Chinese life I, I want to just clarify the idea of faith uh, and religion with you I'm not sure how much how much of this faith is religious faith and how much of it is sort of centered around the communist ideals is the, the government pushing the agenda so so how do we what's so unique about China's faith China's religious scene there
1: well the government uh, is when the government took power in 1949, they tried to sort of replace religion with communist ethics and communist heroes like the hero Leifeng and it, under Mao, Mao himself almost became like a god and the little red book was almost like a bible. That ended in the 19, when, when Mao died in 1976. But the party hasn't completely given up its own values and, and this party still pushes um, the values, that, that it has a sort of selfless sacrifice for the nation and that sort of thing. And for, that still inspires some people, but probably not too many people really believe in communism as an ideology. Uh, so the, the government recognizes this. It hasn't given that up entirely. You still see pictures of these communist heroes and so on and so forth, and President Xi Jinping still talks about communist values and, and belief in communism. But the government realizes, look, uh, this is only going to attract uh, or be of interest to a small percentage of the population. We need to reach a broader uh, percentage of the population, reach more people. So the government has allowed and even supported some religious life. Not all religions in China, but a number of them have gotten, especially over the past, say, five ten years, have gotten more and more government support and so i think it's a mixture of things it's some of the communist values but it's also religious ideas as well uh, so you
0: argue that people in the west are kind of accustomed to thinking in quite exclusive terms like this person is catholic that person is jewish muslim uh, but, but in china religious attachment sort of lacked this absoluteness you, know, you got uh, Confucianism, buddhism taoism um, those were not sort of technically separate institutions uh, and it's more accurate to view religion in China as a holistic Chinese uh, religion. So how does, how does this kind of combination of religious beliefs and faith in China sort of shape up? And uh, have you done any sort of comparative analysis uh, in terms of how China's religion would have a different kind of impact on its people compared to in Western countries, how religion usually affect uh, the population?
1: Yeah, in traditional China, there were obviously temples that were exclusively Buddhist or exclusively Daoist um, and there were Confucian temples and, and as well. Uh, but by and large, it, w- it was sort of an amalgam of these faiths. People talk about the three teachings, the san jiao, hei, like the three teachings being united or some Western scholars have made a comparison of one mountain with three paths up the mountain. So you're on a different path, but you're basically going in the same place. Um, And I think that that's a better way of thinking about Chinese religion rather than in these exclusive terms. That's a more modern idea that you define yourself exclusively and say, I'm only a Buddhist, I'm only a Taoist or something like that. In traditional China, that wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense. And I think today people, still, some people will say, hey, I'm only Buddhist, or I really just believe in Buddhism. But overall, people tend to mix them together. And so it's better maybe just to think of it as Chinese religion or Chinese culture, in fact. And I guess that's maybe the difference between how religion plays out in Western countries and in China. In Western countries, it's still—it's very much this idea of a separate institution, and people talk about, you know, separating church and state. Uh, or in France, for example, they have a po- policy of radical uh, laicity, as they, they they call it in France, where religion can't have any place in public spaces at all. So if you go to a, a school, you cannot wear a cross, or a Muslim woman can't wear a hijab, or something like that. So you cannot. So there's a, a very strong consciousness about religion as a separate pillar in society. In China, people, some people are very religious and will say, no, I'm definitely, I'm a Buddhist and I'm a member, a Malay member of a, a temple. But over, it also bleeds into culture a lot more. So sometimes people will say, well, I'm not really religious, but I do go to the temple and pray. Right. And you'll say, well, that sounds like religion. And they'll say, no, it's just traditional Chinese culture. So they'll just say is, it's,
0: is superstition in in a way
1: part of it? Is, as well, well, superstition is a word I don't like to <laughs> use. It has a derogatory term, and it's hard to say. You know what's superstition and what's religion? These these concepts were imported into China in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century uh, via Japan from the West. So there's this idea that some belief is okay, and that's religion, and other things are superstitious. But if you actually try to define, you know, what's superstitious? Uh, it's fairly hard to sort of say is belief in a guy who's crucified on a cross and comes back to life three days later. Is that superstition? No, it's religion. Well, why is that religious but, you know, believing in something else, superstition? So anyway, I don't, I don't like those things, but the, the party used that for quite a while. This term, mixin, was uh, used as a way to sort of slag off or uh, denigrate some parts. And in fact, a lot of Chinese faith or belief got defined as superstition in the course of the 20th century, before the Communists took power. People often make the mistake, they think that all this started in 1949, but it actually started in the late Qing Dynasty as modernizers were trying to radically reshape Chinese society, people like Sun Yat-sen and so on and so forth. Under the ROC, the, the Kuomintang, the KMT, which ran China from you know, roughly 1911, 1912, until 1949, although, you know, various hiccups and invasions and so on. But uh, they also had a policy of trying to limit traditional Chinese religion and define some stuff as superstition. What's happened recently in the past 10, 20 years is the government has said, okay, that's not so productive calling these things superstition because a lot of it is fundamental to Chinese belief and Chinese culture, ancestor worship. Uh, sweeping the tomb at Qingming festival, Um, certain deities who are very popular like Mazu, the deity on the coastal regions of China, the uh, god of wealth, uh, these don't fit neatly into a category of being Taoist or Buddhist. So the government's allowed these folk beliefs to come back and simply to call it culture and so they call it intangible cultural heritage uh, using a term from UNESCO uh, and in chinese this abbreviation fei has become uh, a big hot topic and everybody governments around china compete with each other to redefine oh no we've got more cultural, cultural, heritage, yeah, yeah. cultural heritage than you do and it's become part of the way that elite local leaders are promoted not just economic growth but also how much traditional culture there Protecting and promoting so this has become uh, something really big a big hot topic in China But it's hard to say is it a hundred percent religion? No, but it's definitely got a religious component to it Why are we seeing uh,
0: awakening right now? I mean is it more of a top-down government mandate in, in encouraging you know this sort of competition for cultural revival or is it like a bottom-up trend where we're seeing just people voluntarily wanting more faith and values in their lives?
1: Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think it started out as a bottoms-up thing, a reaction to the end of the Mao era when the belief in sort of the great leader and communism collapsed. What do people believe in? Uh, some people believed in materialism, just get rich. That's my, my, my top priority in life. But that, when that didn't sort of work out for, for a lot of people who felt there has to be more to life than just getting rich. Um, people, many people turn to religion. I think the government recognized that and is trying to steer that, is trying to guide that, but it is still very much a bottoms-up movement as well. I think just also a sense of community is missing for a lot of people. Uh, Don't forget up until relatively recently 80% of Chinese people lived in villages and now we have this huge urbanization, so people moving to the cities, half of people now live in the cities, but these are big cities where you don't know your neighbor, just issues that you find in, in many countries around the world. And religion provides a ready-made community. Like, I don't know who my neighbors are. I don't necessarily trust other people in this big chaotic city like Beijing, but I know the people in my church or I know the people in my temple. And so you have a, an instant community of, of, of friends and, and so on. So I think that also plays a role. Uh, you, you just brought the idea of materialism, how, you know,
0: people... Uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was this uh, sense of encouragement in the society to get rich quickly with the economic reforms and all that. So, very curious to hear your thoughts on, on this topic because many people still criticize the Chinese society for having too much of an emphasis on economic progress, GDP growth, and that's how the, that's a metric Chinese people always use to to, to say we progressed. Uh, in the past 40 years. We, we've made a lot of progress. So, um, But culturally, it doesn't seem to have the same same level of vitality. So do you think the current revival of faith and religion would be a good solution and, and supplement to, to it? Uh, will it be the solution or?
1: Well, no, you're right. I think growth has been paramount to China and it's legitimate also. There's uh, after the Cultural Revolution in the late 1970s, a lot of people were still quite poor. And so economic growth was important. I think when people like Deng Xiaoping in the late 1970s set out on this course of economic reforms, they looked around Asia, and they looked at other countries in in, in Asia, like South Korea, Taiwan, uh, of course culturally an important part of China. Uh, They looked at places like Singapore, but even Thailand, Malaysia had moved ahead and were much wealthier than China and so they thought, you know, we need to catch up. So economic growth became the number one priority for the country. And up until about ten years ago, if you were a government official in China, you were basically judged on two uh, metrics. Uh, One was GDP growth in your village or your township or your city or your province and social stability. So you make sure there's no protests and riots. If you've got stability and you've got growth, you can get promoted, and that was enough. And then I think starting about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, people began, this was also a grassroots movement, to push for environmental changes. Look, there's a lot of destruction of the environment. You got some NGOs, that rose up and began to push for more you know, clean air, clean water, similar process that you saw in many countries around the world, frankly. You saw that in the United States, you saw that in Europe. Uh, after, you know, industrialization is great, but it also messes up the environment. And then the government began to add a new uh, metric to the equation for local officials, environmental protection. And especially under Xi Jinping, culture has become another thing, promoting traditional culture because people need something to believe in. They need something to give their life meaning. It's not, you know, if you say to Chinese people, oh, China's great, it's the factory of the world, people will be kind of a little disappointed. They'll say, well, we're not just the factory of the world. We're, we have a 5,000-year-old civilization, uh, and we're more than just a factory. We've got this ancient culture. And so I think the idea of trying to uh, promote that has become something, you know, it's not, not just a government priority, but the government has, has adopted that as well. And so you see a popularity uh, among Chinese parents of sending children to traditional schools sometimes where they learn, uh, according to Confucian, uh, you know, memorizing, writing things out, learning, memorizing things like the three-character classic, the San Jing*, uh, learning calligraphy, uh, and, and that kind of thing. Those have become popular uh, f- among among uh, parents. So you see that revival of traditional culture as a searching, I think, for meaning in life. I just want to ask
0: you go deeper on the concept of government's uh, involvement in all this because uh, you wrote in, in another article for Foreign Affairs titled How the State is Co-opting Religion in China, that the state has chosen to re itself in religious life. But, but it seems that a lot of people, when they think about Chinese state, Communist Party, and religion, they would th- they would go uh doesn't religious activity sort of go against the communist mm-hmm. faith and um it's sort of a conflict right and so maybe it could create some social instability that the government doesn't want to see or, or collective action or whatever um so do you think there's this sort
1: of tension here It's definitely a tension the government realizes that people need something to believe in and so in a limited way is willing to tolerate more religious life but it's not sort of unshackled religion or allowed religion to do what it wants. After communism collapsed in Eastern Europe in 1989, 1990, the uh, Communist Party in China studied this phenomenon and they realized that one of the reasons was that some religious groups, for example, the Catholic Church in Poland, were too powerful. Uh, and they helped overthrow um, the, the the regime in, in, in Poland. So they, they want to keep control over civil society groups. So that would include NGOs or religious organizations. So there's definitely a tension where the government on the one hand sees the value in religion, that it can help, not necessarily destabilize society, it can help in some ways stabilize society by giving people something to believe in, by giving them an outlet for, you know, many people have a desire to do good things in society, to help out poor people, to do something positive for society, uh, so the government's also allowed, in a limited way, NGOs as, as a way to do that, but they also allow faith-based ch- charity as well. Uh, again, under government guidance, but they all have allowed that. And in a way, that can be stabilizing for society. Now, they don't want it to get out of control. They don't want to have a, 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 a situation like in Poland, where you have an independent Catholic church that's you know, criticizing the Communist Party. That would not be acceptable. So the government kind of acts as a guiding hand in this
0: process, fostering more search for meaning and values, but I want to discuss the idea of like as moral arbitrator. I think that's a concept people also talk about in the United States now uh, when people talk about Facebook for example, right? When Facebook chooses which content to promote and which content to be taken down, um, maybe some of the conservatives say, oh I feel like Facebook is the moral arbitrator deciding whether liberal or conservative content gets uh, spread out and p- put on the line. Uh, so it seems to me that when an institution or organization becomes so powerful, they are inevitably put in the position of, of deciding a lot of things on a pretty normative moral basis. And that could include the Chinese government when it comes to religion, right? Where they decide... Uh, which kind of groups, which kind of organizations, uh, could do better than the others? Uh, so, how how do how should we comment on this kind of power? What's what's the mindset we should be, be having?
1: Well, I think one thing to keep in mind is that Chinese uh, governments have done this also throughout history. The government, uh, the state, uh, whether it's the PRC or the ROC or the Qing dynasty or the Ming, uh, going back in time they always defined what was orthodox, what was acceptable, so what was zheng in Chinese, and what was unorthodox, or xie. So this idea of zheng and xie is something that governments have, have, ha, have taken upon themselves as power to define what's acceptable. So China was always a pluralistic society with many different religions, but it, was not necess- it didn't necessarily have complete religious freedom. It didn't have complete religious freedom. So the government's always played a role. Um, in in that sort of thing, and you see that today as well. The government thinks that some faiths are more acceptable than others, and I think it feels more comfortable with the so-called traditional faiths of Buddhism, Taoism, and then this folk religion that they've allowed back in the form of intangible cultural heritage. Those are basically okay. They all have maybe some problematic sides to them, you know, Buddhism, You've got Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, that could be a problem, but basically, Buddhism 90% is fine, Taoism is pretty much 100% okay, folk religion, fine. The other two main religions in China, Christianity and Islam, are more problematic from the government's point of view because of their overseas ties, because they're global religions with uh, many relationships overseas. Um, obviously, the Catholic Church. Headquartered in Rome, uh, Protestant Church uh, has this big Protestant community, uh, and, and that, that feeds in and out of China. Islam is, a, of course, a global religion of over a billion people, and you have many Muslim countries around Asia uh, that might want to influence China through the Muslim p- community. So you have the government very skeptical of that just like it's skeptical of NGOs that have overseas ties so again like NGOs are a good example NGOs are basically okay if it's just you want to clean up your local river that's okay you're a do-gooder and you want to help out something fine but if you want to like link up and form a nationwide or international network or you want to join Greenpeace and then they're like no that's more of a problem because now you become a real civil society player, you might have to become more independent, too powerful, they don't want that. It's a small, independent, So, in the case of religion, if you're just a pious person and you just wanna go to the temple or the church or the mosque and pray, that's fine. Go do your thing. Or if you even wanna do a little bit more and maybe set up a food bank for poor people or homeless people or something like that, that's okay also. But they don't want you getting too organized and too big. That's where the government gets nervous.
0: That, that totally makes sense. Uh, just want to um, go back to your experience writing this book, *The Souls of China: uh, Return of Religion After Mao*. And and you, when you were writing this book, you attended an unregistered Christian church. You dined with celebrity Zen Buddhists. You practiced Qigong, which is a religious breathing exercise combined with meditation. And it seems that like you really blend in with with the people very well. And and. Uh, is that your way of learning about China? Do you think it's your methodology and approach to studying and learning about China would be very different from what other journalists or scholars normally approach China?
1: Well, it's a little bit different from most journalists because they don't have the time. Uh, I work as a freelancer and I'm not tied to having to you know, go to work every day from 9 to 5 and uh, write articles about every news event that happens. So I can pick and choose articles when I write in the media, and that gives me a lot of freedom to spend time with people and and hang out with them. Uh, And so I think in that way, I'm closer to what an anthropologist or ethnographer would do, where you go and embed yourself in a community and spend a lot of time um, trying to live with them as much as possible and learn about their life. And I think that's why... I sort of, maybe it comes across that I blend in uh, into these communities because I just spent more time with them. I think time is really the essence. Time can't be replaced. You have to put in the time if you're going to understand people. You can't sort of come in, especially nowadays, and especially in journalism, but other areas probably also. People have want to do everything quickly, but people will only open up to you if you... Uh, if you spend time with them and win their trust, they can understand you. No, you're not gonna cheat them. That you're not gonna misrepresent their stories, that you're making a good faith effort to understand them. That matters a lot, I think, to people.
0: Do you ever think that there could be a sense of bias when when Western media writes about China?
1: Uh, And 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 I'll
0: I'll give you a quick example. I talk way too much in this interview, so I, Read this New York Times article about I don't know if you read about this. This is reporting on China Global Television Network. They have sort of offices across the globe. It's kind of an English channel. They have the headquarters uh, of the North America station in Washington D.C. And some of the leadership and staff were being recalled back to China after like seven years. Uh, spending seven years in, in the States. And the New York Times did poll piece sort of s- suspecting, speculating or reporting that it's probably because those people have violated certain communistic ideals or, or in a sense that wrote, written something uh, or said something politically incorrect considered in, Ch- in China. Uh, for example, when the Justice Department were questioning what they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I think the the actual truth was just because those people's visa expired and they have to go back to China and there weren't that many layers behind the story. So I feel like when Western journalists, I think there are a lot of wonderful reporting done in China that are very objective and, and sort of gives us a critical lens to it. But sometimes, don't you think Western journalists tend to read a little bit too much into the policy making process, the decisions being made? And it could
1: be. I mean, I'm sure... I don't know that article specifically, right. but I think uh, part of it is it's hard to figure out what's going on in China because it's not so transparent. And uh, when you work as a foreign journalist, basically nowadays, you can never get an interview with the government. It's really anything. tough these days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You just never get an interview. So even talking to Chinese academics, um, officials, it's just so hard because there's. I think there's a feeling that there's no upside for somebody to give you an interview maybe you'll just be criticized internally or you could get into trouble if the article's negative and then it looks bad for you so the so individually it makes sense why they don't give interviews but the effect is that you it's very hard to get the government's point of view or to say to ask about this maybe you tried they try to do interviews and they couldn't get interviews and so then you're left to speculate sometimes about things. Um, I think the biggest criticism I hear of the media's coverage of China is that it's so negative. And I think that's true. I think the problem that the media has is when it writes about any foreign country is journalists are trained to think that good news is no news, right? It's not dog, you know the the old cliche, it's not the dog bites man, that's the story, it's the man bites the dog, that's the story, because that's strange and bizarre and unusual. And so so the idea, say, that a bridge, I remember once in 1994, when I first went to China as a journalist, the foreign ministry took us on a trip to Guizhou province, a poorer part, mountainous part of China, and we were driving along these roads and going through tunnels and over bridges, and the official said, why do foreigners, foreign journalists only write about uh, the bridge when it collapses? And I said, of course, you know, who's going to write about a bridge that doesn't <laughs> collapse? You know, bridge doesn't collapse. What's the news, right? A bridge collapses and people die. That's the news. But then, you know, later I realized he had a point because what was going on there, is this infrastructure construction in China was actually really significant, and if you want to lift people out of poverty, the best thing to do is build infrastructure, roads, yeah, roads and right. bridges and all this to let people get to market, get their products to market. And I think we were just there, or at least I was there as a young, uh, callow journalist, and thinking, well, what's what's the story about building a bridge? Um, and I think that journalists are so it's not just covering china though it's the problem of covering all countries around the world you know if you're if you're in the united states and you read the new york times it's all negative stuff about the united states trump doing this or that scandal or the economy having a problem or unemployment here or some city going bankrupt it's all negative stuff by and large like say 90 percent negative news but if you're an american reading the new york times about america you have a context like you can say okay here i am i'm living in my community uh, I realize that most of the time people aren't getting murdered and stuff like that. It, right. You can feel it, can, Yeah, you put, contextualize the news right. with your own le- lived experience and you can put it in some sort of, you can make sense of it. But if you're reading about news coming from Africa or India or China and it's all negative, you think, well those countries must be in a to- totally chaotic mess. Uh, China must be like North Korea, right? It must be sort of like this dictatorship held together only, you know, with nuclear weapons or something like that. And well, I, I was always struck in the 1990s when I was a journalist and friends would come visit and they'd always say, God, China's nothing like I imagined. And I thought, we must be doing something wrong if after reading our work, people come to China and they're surprised at what they see. They must, we must not be describing things properly. And I think this is a systemic problem in the media of not being able to... Yeah, okay, okay, occasionally there are stories, but say high-speed rail in China being built or the GDP in China being high, those are good news, positive stories. But by and large, it's negative, and I think that's just the institutional bias of the media is to write about that. I don't know how to fix that. I think that's just the way journalists are trained and have been trained for a long, long time. But it leads to, to the coverage of any country being unrelentingly negative.
0: Do you have any, uh, I guess, prediction when it comes to where China will headed in the short, very long term? Because people these days have all kinds of theses, you know, they're like, oh, I think China will become a suit, take over America's place in 20 years, or, oh, I think China won't do so well, blah, blah, blah. Everybody has kind of a punchline. What would be your yeah, I don't have one. China? Unfortunately, I, I'm always you
1: know? bad at predictions, and I never <laughs> my, my <laughs> predictions never pan out. So I don't know what I'd say except um, I think things will continue. I don't I don't think there will be a big ch- political change in China in the near future, but I do think overall that the country continues to develop economically, socially. Uh, at least, and I, I think things probably stay the same for the next 10 or 20 years. But, I, you know, having said that, everything could change next year, but I don't think so. Uh,
0: so, you, in addition to China, you are also an expert on Germany, because you were the, the Wall Street Journal's uh, Germany bureau chief. Uh, do you probably ro- less of an expert on Germany, no, yeah, I have, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I've lived there for a while, and I yeah, worked there, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, do you, do, I know you haven't worked in Germany for a while, but do you have any take on the current refugee crisis, where the German society is headed, because uh, I know, you, because you published uh, this book called A Mosque in Munich, uh, Nazis, the CA and the Muslim Brotherhood in the West, in 2010, which detailed how radical Islam sank roots in, in Western soil. So you kind of have looked into those issues related to terrorism, religion, and, and you've always written about those things. So. Uh, we were just talking about social transformations uh, in in China. What's your take on Germany?
1: Well, Germany has been through this period with uh, one leader at the top for quite a while and it's now Angela Merkel's days are are numbered. She'll retire soon in the next probably year or so and um, so I, I think probably you're going to see a political change in Germany. You've had a very moderate leader at the top, somebody without a lot of strong ideas and ideology. The next leader of Germany could be quite more abrasive. If they're lucky, it'll be a, a competent person. But it's not impossible, even in Germany, that a Trump-style populist could take power. Uh, I think a lot of Americans have looked at Germany and said, oh, thank goodness Germany's run by such moderates, et cetera, uh, but that may not be the case in the future. So there's, there's a lot of social tensions in Germany that have been masked. It had very strong economic growth for the past uh, decade or so, but I, I think you also see a rise of far-right, um, anti-immigrant policies. This has been sort of kept in check by Merkel and her ability, but, and, and also just the economic growth, but it could be much more tense in the future.
0: I was interning in Munich for two months this past summer, last summer, and some of the very nice Germans I talked to d- d- didn't oppose the idea of accepting refugees, but were just very uncomfortable with the idea of living with, with Muslims. And they, it didn't seem to be a s- systemic racism or discrimination, but rather it just seemed unrealistic to them um, that they accept such a big crowd of people that are not in their religion or uh, in, in their culture. So I want to hear your thoughts on just what do you think is a fundamental cause of, I guess, religious conflict would be such a great, uh, too big of a phrase, but people's sort of sense of insecurity when facing uh, people that are different from their religion or immigrants, or e- even in a place like Germany where people are highly educated, um, the resources are vast, and, and so... What's your take on those issues?
1: I know it's kind of a broad, uh, unclear question. No, I think it's, but, but, yeah. it's a good point. I think the, in Germany the biggest problem has been mixing up refugees and immigrants. And so when these refugees were coming in, and they were war refugees coming into Germany, this wave of people coming up from Syria uh, through Eastern Europe and coming up onto the German borders, I think Merkel was quite right to say, we have a moral obligation to help these people, to bring these people into the country because they are refugees and they need help. It's a different equation as to whether they should be immigrants. So I think one of the things Germans mixed up where they said immediately, well, they should all learn German and we should all help them integrate into the economy. So then you're like, okay, well, they're no longer, refugees may go back if the place, if there's or peace. Right. Yeah, right. right. So, but immigrants are quite different. You know Americans uh, if you take Canada for example as a very extreme case. Canada borders the United States and, and that's it. And it doesn't have refugees unless it chooses to accept refugees. So yeah, it's accepted a few tens of thousands of refugees but not hundreds of thousands. It's, and it just chooses, you want to come to Canada as a refugee, okay, we can accept a few thousand, you can fly in on an airplane and we'll accept you. And when they have immigrants, they can have a point system and they say, okay, you can come to Canada if you have a, you know, a, a degree in nursing or something that they might need, um, or college education or whatnot. That's fine. They can choose. In other words, they can choose who comes into the country. But when you're in a situation like Germany, in that particular case, you're a land, you're you're a land country like that. You're very close geographically to tumultuous parts of the world, and these people are flooding into your country. Uh, Are they going to be refugees? Are they going to be immigrants? You know, and I think realistically, some of the people who came to Germany would not make successful immigrants, because they may be very nice people, they may, and certainly all have terrible hardship stories, but they may be just a shopkeeper with a middle school education who's, say, 50 years old. Now, is that person realistically ever going to learn German well enough to work in Germany? Germany needs highly skilled people to work You know, in in electronics and in, they have a a shortage of labor. So people often conflated, we need labor, here are people coming in. But they needed highly skilled labor. They didn't need people with a middle school education who couldn't speak the language. What's that person going to do? The the best they could do is push a broom and sweep the shop floor. They're never going to work in the shop, right? Um, There are some people who came who are, you know, 20 years old or 25 years old. They could learn German and they could get trained up. But you had a lot of, you know, grannies and grandpas, and those people were never going to, and I think this is where the, the politicians never made this clear. So Merkel just said, yeah, they can all come in. And I think on a gut level, a lot of Germans said, well, what are we gonna do with all these people? They're gonna be a permanent underclass, essentially. Uh, there's no work for people like that here. We're just gonna have to, they're gonna be on welfare, realistically, right, for the rest of their lives. Um, and So I think that this lack of honesty from the political class about that has led to this brewing unease and kind of resentment. Like, so what's going to happen with all these people? It would be if they could all get jobs, it would be one thing. But realistically, you can look around, you can see the people. They're not educated. They probably won't be able to get educated. They're not from, you know, educated classes. It's going to be hard for them to integrate. I think that's the problem there. But you know, on the other hand, there are racists. There are people who are just flat out racists. I would no immigrants ever. You know, that's so, a different story. Yeah, that's right? a, those people exist for sure in Germany, you know, the far right, so right.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you've w- worked in China, Germany, and you'll also you you mentioned how they're very very different countries, uh, and, and you are American educated. So I'm very curious in, I guess, hearing your thoughts on how do you transform your mindsets or or perspectives or lens when you go to all those different places to report to write uh,
1: how do you do that Uh, i have i'm schizophrenic so so, uh, multiple personalities Uh, yeah well actually so i I grew up uh i i i'm an american citizen and but i naturalized i'm a naturalized american citizen i grew up in montreal in canada and that's a country that's canada is a Country with two cultures, and Montreal is—I came from the English-speaking minority in Quebec, and in Montreal, which is part of Quebec, which is a French-speaking province—and I grew up in a time when there were a lot of disputes over language, uh, and so it always made me very sensitive to the fact that language plays a big role. That people have different cultures, and you have to be very sensitive to people's cultural, you know, when I grew up there was even a, a terrorism movement in Quebec, uh, an independence movement for Quebec. Uh, the When we were going to school you weren't allowed to use mailboxes, letterboxes, because people had put bombs inside because you open the letterbox, box, <laughs> the thing blows up. So that kind of thing makes you aware as a kid that uh, these issues of language and culture can matter a lot to people. And so it made me quite sensitive. I then moved to the United States um, but I've only lived in the U- United States for about 10 years total in my life. I've lived in China for about double that so I guess I'm used to living overseas more and dealing with other cultures.
0: Got you. That's, that totally makes sense. Uh, in terms of working in the media as a journalist how have you seen the landscape of media and, and journalism change because I know there's a lot of uh, fuzz about new media, about how paper media is dying, you know, newspapers aren't really mm. selling, all those sort of issues. So, so
1: Yeah, um, it's a big problem that's been going on for a long time, for 20 years, and especially over the past 10 years. Ever since the, I guess, the recession in 2008, 2009, that really m- focused people's minds, but although the media was declining before then, um, that the... And the bottom line, I think, is that people, there aren't enough people who want to pay for serious content. People want content to be free. They've gotten used to this idea that content is sort of free on the, on the Internet. And uh, only a few newspapers can really survive with a paywall where you actually get subscribers to pay for digital content. That uh, means that most newspapers have collapsed. So the newspaper that I worked at first in China as a foreign correspondent when I went there in 1994 was the Baltimore Sun and at that time it had eight bureaus overseas now it has zero and it used to have I don't know 15 people in the Washington Bureau now it's just got a handful and a lot of newspapers have just shrunk um, this is a problem that people haven't really found a solution to what I worry about is that we'll have a, not just a gap between rich and poor in this country. I think we already have a gap now between the informed and the uninformed. You know, people, you'll find people in sort of people who are part of the global elite, or people who are well-educated in the United States will subscribe to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Review of Books. They'll pay the money because they realize it has a value, it will help them succeed in life, it will help them understand the world better or whatever their motivation might be, but they're willing to pay for it. Uh, and then you'll have, unfortunately, I think the vast majority of people won't, and they'll get a lot of information from Facebook and uh, Pinterest, and you know, and they'll just spend all their time on social media looking at Instagram and stuff like that, and sort of fry their minds on that sort of stuff without becoming informed. And I think that that's just a really big sad. problem. It's yeah. sad, and it's a problem for democracy, because democracy, you need an informed you can't just have voters. If you just have stupid voters, that doesn't make a democracy. You need to have informed voters. Voters who understand what they're voting about. Otherwise how can they So so how do how do those publications do a better job? I, I, I don't know, because the problem is how do you get people to value this information? The great thing about American media used to be that the medium sized and the small papers were very good actually. And now they're not so good and people little things like the local school board meeting, the local county council, the town council, those meetings were covered and you could read about it in a fairly objective fashion in the newspaper. So you could understand, oh, the school board's doing this. Oh, they want to build a road there. Or what do I, what do I think about that? When I go to vote, I have some idea of what's going on in society. Now those newspapers often don't exist or the big newspapers that once covered them have shrunk and no longer cover those things, especially in suburbs, on the outskirts of big cities they don't cover that anymore. And so you're living in an information vacuum. So you go to vote on the county council, you don't know. You just, who, who's a good candidate or not. So civil society has really been declining in,
0: in a sense. Uh, I wouldn't say, maybe not even throughout the world, but at least here, domestically, in the U.S. Yeah, I think so. Sort of
1: yeah, I think it's, it's declined here also.
0: Interesting. Awesome. Um, after all those years of analyzing social and religious issues, um, I guess the last question I would have is: uh, the the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline, so I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts on the 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 punchline here. What's the punchline for social the issues of social transformation, religious revival, whether it's in China, Germany, or wherever else the, the part of the world we're we're seeing
1: today? How do how do we? What's the punchline here? <laughs> well, the, maybe the commonality in all these countries is that people are searching for new kinds of for values. They feel that society is somehow a little bit out of, their, out of control, that it's too commercially oriented, uh, that everything is about making money. You can feel it in this country as well, this sort of groundswell of opposition, that the things that, that the elites this, who ran this country the people in Washington, the sort of media elites, that they are no longer in touch with people, and hence you have this populist upsurge, this vote for Trump. You can see the same thing in Britain with the Brexit vote and the rise of right-wing populism in Europe, um, and this, this dissatisfaction with the status quo in China. I think it's partly this idea that people feel that societies are not, are not they, they don't have a say in how, the, how to shape society. And 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 that there's a lack of shared values in society that might have existed in the past, and I think that's a big uh, a big challenge for policymakers, whoever they are, and it doesn't have to be some sort of go- government elites. It can just be people in their neighborhood and in their community to try to rebuild that. Awesome, it's such a
0: wonderful conversation about China, Germany, journalism, values. Uh, Thank you so much for coming today, Mr. Johnson. My pleasure. Awesome. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. We'd like to thank, for instance, uh, East Asian Studies Department for connecting us with Mr. Johnson. It's been a great uh, interview. Uh, Please follow us on policypunchline.com, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, and on Twitter at Policy Punchline. Thank you so much for listening today.